Hey there, welcome back to the Claim the Stage podcast for episode 59. Today is going to be all mixed up, not what you expected, even though you didn't know what to expect, because it's always a surprise on the Claim the Stage podcast. Am I right? I'm Angela Lucier. I'm your host. I'm also a speaker, an author, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood. And the Claim the Stage podcast is a space for women who are interested in discovering, awakening, and creating their voice through the art of public speaking. So we talk about all things related to speaking up, how to be a better presenter, how to make money as a speaker, all that stuff. And today's episode was supposed to be about how to turn your presentation into a performance. And This morning I woke up thinking, I don't know if I want to talk about that today. I have a lot on my mind. Saturday was a big moment in our country with the racial discussions going on. And I realized I'm having someone on my show today who I'm sure has a lot to add to this conversation. And so I asked him 11 minutes before our interview if we could totally change the whole subject and instead talk about race and talk about his experience with race in our country. And he was open to it. So this is a totally improvised conversation, which is apropos because I met Hari, today's guest, in improv. (laughs) We took improv together last year. And I just love his energy. I love his sense of humor. I love his playfulness. And I also love his perspective. And so in today's episode, we talk about how, as a public speaker, you can bring current events and these really difficult topics like race, religion, sex, gender, you know, age into your topics, into your presentations and be relevant while also opening the door to a conversation that probably needs to happen. And Hari also shares his experience in, you know, living his life while also sharing some perspective and ideas and advice on what to do next when something like this that happened in Charlottesville on Saturday happens in our country. So to give you some context, I'm going to tell you a bit about Hari. Hari Stephen Kumar is a teacher, a story crafter, and vision caster whose itinerary includes India, Yemen, Egypt, Arizona, and 20 consecutive winters in Massachusetts. His composite career weaves engineering, training, teaching, and the humanities. After earning his master's degree in engineering in 2000, he worked as an engineer and a trainer at the MathWorks until 2008 when he left to pursue his passion for teaching. And since 2006, he has worked extensively with a broad range of teachers and trainers on facilitating inclusive, transgressive, and transformative learning. He earned a second master's degree in communication in 2011 while teaching public speaking, writing, and social theory at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Currently, he's the director of educational development at Springfield Technical Community College, and he's an active scholar and speaker on performance-based approaches to teaching and learning, especially on issues of whiteness, gender, religion, politics, and mass media. And so with a, with a bio like that, you can imagine why I wanted to change today's conversation. And in the future, I would like to have Hari back on the podcast to have this conversation about presentation as performance, because I do think that's a really important topic. And before we jump into that interview with him, I just want to comment on last week's episode, because as you know, <laughs> that was the hardest episode I've ever recorded. And I don't know if I mentioned it at the time, but I was dr- drenched in sweat. <laughs> while recording that. And 
I had to take a nap afterwards. I was so exhausted from actually having to record it three times to get it right and uh, the pacing and everything. So I want to thank everyone who commented on the episode, who shared it on, on social media, who wrote me a message to share what that meant to you, and also just kind of giving your support for having that kind of voice in the world because it was definitely difficult to put out there and I'm really glad that I did. So thank you to everyone for, for letting me know how, how you felt about it. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode with Hari Steven Kumar. Hari, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Angela. Thank you. It's, it's great to be here. We had originally planned to talk about public speaking as performance and as art and how to kind of get up on stage and build this really amazing experience for your audience. Maybe someday we will do that episode because I do, I do think it's a great topic. But given the events that took place on Saturday in Charlottesville and the fact that you I, I enjoy reading your posts on Facebook and that you have a different perspective than me in the world. I really want to talk to you about like what it's like to be you and also, sure. <laughs> and also these events that took place. And so as a starting point, maybe you could just tell us a bit about your background and where you're from and where you live now. And we can kind of go from there. Sounds great. Thanks. Yeah. And thank you for, um, you know, making the space to, to talk about this given the recent events. Um, I think it's important that we uh, not treat it as, uh, you know, just business as usual. And it's, I think it's important for us to, that's been one of my motto, uh, you know, one of my kind of key framings ever since November uh, is that none of this is business as usual. And um, uh, it, it all uh, is worthy of just, you know, interrupting our daily lives to, to talk about this, to take action against what's going on. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It felt, it felt really important. And like, we can't just act like, yeah, we're just going to talk about public speaking and pretend nothing's happening. In the world. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks. Uh, one of the things that you had sent me in terms of thinking about the public speaking as performance was, uh, you know, some advice for public speakers. Uh, what are the biggest rules that you think should be broken? Um, I think one of the things that, especially you, you mentioned uh, for women who want to be well-known speakers uh, and, and my own personal elaborating philosophy, and I think it's exactly things like this. I think as, as public speakers, um, you know, we have an opportunity to, to speak and it's, it's really important for us to be uh, really alert to the possibilities that emerge uh, and to abandon uh, a canned script uh, when we realize that there's something urgent that we need to speak to. Um, and, and, uh, so I'm, I'm all in favor. And I think that's, that's one of the big rules that, uh, I think we should break on a regular basis is just to abandon a script and, and seize the, the possibility that's available. How do you know what to say? It, sometimes it feels like you want to address it, but how, you know, how, how do you do it? Yeah. Um, and this, this, uh, I, I realize I'm, <laughs> Uh, I'm not answering your questions. Like, you know, what's what's my background? <laughs> We're gonna to get there. Gonna... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think for me, uh, I was just reading, uh, rereading the other day. Uh, Charles Duhigg has a has a great book called uh, "Smarter, Faster, Better," and the title is is very very misleading. It's very off putting. I, I I would not have picked up that book with just by based on that title. 
because God knows I'm, I'm just, you know, it feels like we're always being pressured to be smarter, faster, better. Yeah. But it turns out his book is, is, is nothing to do with that. It's, it's a, lot of, a lot about meaningfulness. Um, and one of the uh, key chapters he has in there is about focus. Uh, and he talks about mental models and about how do we train ourselves to respond to the unexpected. Um, and one of the key insights there is that the people who are really good at that, uh, being able to speak in the moment to something that emerges unexpectedly, are people who are able to continually tell themselves stories um, and do a lot of what-if scenarios, are able to narrate their, their lives. Um, so it's one of the things I think about a lot um, is, is, you know, it is my background and is um, how to make sense of the world around me. And so I, I keep telling myself stories in my head about uh, to try to make sense of, of things. And these are all various different ways of, of um, creating a mental model. Um, or another way to think about it is that, and, and this is true for, for many speakers that I've talked to as well, uh, that when it's, a, when it's a topic, you know, when there, when there are many topics that you can speak on, you find yourself actually creating little speeches in your head, yeah. uh, you know, and thinking about, you know, this, this is what I would say, or, oh, I just thought of a great example, and I can see that in, in my next speech. I want to find a way to bring in this joke or, or this scene. I want to have this image in my, and it may not, you know, fit, but I think a lot of speakers have like a, a mental toolkit available of lots of different anecdotes, lots of different stories, lots of different pictures that they want to sketch for their audience. Uh, so when it comes to things like race, uh, religion, politics, uh, one of the stories I tell to people about my background, uh, you know, I tell them, you know, look, I started out as an engineer, uh, um, and I was working as an engineer for eight years, um, and I got bit by the teaching bug. But the things that I wanted to teach were things that engineers just did not have formula for, uh, things like, you know, race, religion, politics, gender, uh, and so the story I tell, and I think the reason why it gets a laugh from from people when I tell the story is I tell them exactly in this way, and I say. Engineers are, are terrified by these topics because these are topics for which there is no right answer. <laughs> yes. uh, you know, there's not even an optimal answer. Uh, you know, everybody can have their own opinions. And uh, but that that really is why I left engineering is I really wanted to understand these things. This, what is it about race? What is it about racism that's so that's so pernicious? That's so persistent? Um, what about my own stories? My own backgrounds uh, have contributed to my own racisms, my own prejudices, um, and how to make sense of that. So this is the long way of answering your question, my background. I have a really hard time answering the question where I'm from. Um, but what I, what I do say is that I was born in India, uh, but I, I spent my childhood in Yemen. Uh, from, from the ages of 6 to 16, I was in Yemen. Um, and then I came to the U.S. for graduate school, really. There's a, there's a gap of a few years there. Um, but I've been in the U.S. for the past 20 consecutive winters in Massachusetts. So, so this is where I call home. Uh, this is where I became a U.S. citizen six years ago, um, and uh, and this is where I, I became conscious of politics, of race, of religion. Uh, so my own story has a lot of different transitions in it. Um, even though I was born in India, uh, I'm now an American citizen. Um, my name is not the name that I was born with. Um, I chose this name. Uh, um, I changed my religion. Uh, I was born into a, into a very conservative Orthodox Hindu family, but I was raised in a very conservative Orthodox Muslim environment. Uh, so it makes all the sense in the world that I became a very conservative Orthodox Christian 
when I came to the U.S. Um, but I, I stopped being a Christian um, several years ago. Um, so now I'm, I'm, I'm more of a, an agnostic, really. Mm-hmm. So, so that, for me, has really shaped the way I, I continually think about these things, the way I continually try to make sense of these things. Even when I came back to graduate school after, after engineering to study race and religion, I was not satisfied with very clean explanations because my own life has been very messy. It's, it has been in, in between all these different um, labels. Um, so it's really from that space of being in between that I, that I try to tell stories, that I try to help audiences uh, unpack race and then put it back together. Mm-hmm. And do you feel like, you know, everyone has their own their own kind of walk in life. We're all kind of seeing things through our own lens, even if we're living in the place we came from or like you kind of moved around and, and created a new home. Do you find that you're able to, to locate that, that backbone or that core in a story that everyone can relate to, even if they don't have the same path? And, and how do you get there if you are able to find it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that is actually the most common experience um, that um, people resonate with, the feeling of, of not fitting into the labels that people want to put on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's actually a political project, is to uh, help people push back on these labels and to say, look, you know what? Um, I, I'm not this thing that you assume I am just because you think I'm in this label or in this category. Um, but the, the really important thing for me is to take it up from the level of the individual, you know, and say, all right, you may not feel like this label fits you or so on, but, uh, what does that now mean for us together? Um, and I think when we together can criticize a label and say, this is what needs to change. That's when we can really make a more inclusive space. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to know how you have that conversation. Like if you feel like you're being discriminated against for something to do with your race, what, how do you respond to that? Um, so if it's an individual conversation that I'm having, it's, there's, there's a variety of things. And one of the things I do is with the, where are you from question? Um, I love to play with that question. Um, you know, if I'm being asked that question in a coffee shop, which, which often happens is, a random stranger will ask, you know, where are you from? And I'll say, I'm, I'm from here. Um, and then the follow-up question is, is what shapes the conversation from that point on. Is if, if they then say, well, where are you really from? Or something around those lines. That gives me an opening to engage this person in a, in a bit of a, uh, uh, you know, a mind shift. And, you know, like, well, uh, I'm, I'm really from here. Um, and ask them, you know, where are you really from? So, <laughs> right, um, and it, it leads eventually to, to uh, a questioning of, uh, you know, why is it that you want to know where I'm really from? Why is it that me saying I'm from here wasn't a satisfying enough answer for you? What is it that you're really looking to satisfy mm. by your curiosity as to where you're from? Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on, on who, who it is and my level of patience at that point, uh, uh, you know, uh, I might get snarky, um, you know, and uh, sometimes people will say, wow, you know, your English is so good. <laughs> you know, and I'll say, <laughs> I'll say, well, thanks. You know, yours is not so bad. Uh, you know, 
uh, you might want to take my class. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so things like that. So, but I think um, if it's a more, if it's somebody that I know, if it's if it's in the context of you know, coworkers or or neighbors, um, and they're trying to understand why it is that I find a particular experience to be offensive or to be discriminatory on the basis of race, um, I might draw upon. Uh, their experiences uh, from a different uh, approach, like on gender. Um, so, for example, I had a conversation with a neighbor uh, some time ago about how I, I had a very difficult time uh, if anybody uh, characterized me as being angry or being upset. Um, and I was, the, where that's coming from is there's a long history of uh, you know, men of color especially uh, uh, being characterized as aggressive or, or angry or volatile mm -hmm. uh, or violent. Um, and so I wanted my neighbor to, to really be careful before characterizing me as somehow being upset or annoyed. Um, and the, the experience for, that helped, I think, helped her understand from, a, from her perspective of being a white woman was it wasn't so long ago, and it, <laughs> now it's back again, where women are characterized as emotional or, you know, hysterical. Um, and I think that's a common experience that you can draw upon to help somebody who may not see why something may be racist, um, but by showing out how systems of oppression work similarly for sexism um, or for, you know, ableism uh, or for sexual orientation, um, that can be a, a place to help them understand, okay, it's similar to that. It's similar to that sort of displacement or dehumanization. Yep. Yeah. As you were telling the story about when people ask you where you're from, it reminded me of when people ask me how old I am. I'm often <laughs> I'm asked that question all the time because I look younger than I am and they don't understand how I have a business and do these things. And so I often will turn the question around and say, well, how old do you think I should be to do this? Like, what is the perfect <laughs> age? Because I'm just so sick of the conversation. It's the same thing. It's like, I guess you're asking me to help you understand, but really it's, it's not, that's not the question. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it seems fueled by something else. So getting to the intention or just kind of turning it around on them to think about like, yeah, what am I really getting at here? <laughs> yeah. And the other thing I've, in, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, how, how old do you want me to be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like maybe like for that one day in my life, I'll be the perfect age to do this job. And then people will start saying I'm too old to do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, and sexism creates that, that really bizarre double bind, doesn't it? <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, you know, I wonder if you've had this too, uh, this this feeling that, again, the, the individual uh, versus the collective, right? So the people who tell me, well, man, why are you getting so upset? I'm just asking you where you're from. It's just a, such a simple question. I, I'm not racist by asking that. And I have to try to explain to them, it's it's not about you as an individual asking me this question in this one instance. It's about me getting this question all the damn time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, so, and um, you don't then have to uh, stand in for all the other times that people have asked me this, but I'm just asking you to, you know, uh, don't ask this question. <laughs> you yeah. know, don't, don't be one of the many that keep asking this question. Mm -hmm. So you, we live in, in Western Mass, which is, especially in the um, Hampshire County, is a particularly white area. And I guess I've lived here my whole life, and so I'm I'm used to this 
you know, the, the demographics of the space. But I'm wondering what that's like to walk in the world with such a small population of different color skin around you. You know, like it's, it seems like there are just a lot of white farmers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, and, and this will this will loop us back at some point to uh, what's going on with Charlottesville and uh, the response from different sectors of the community. Um, I, so my experience, I've been here 20 winters, 20 consecutive winters. Um, in, in Western Mass, uh, for 12 consecutive winters. Uh, and so before Western Mass, I was in Eastern Mass. I was in Boston and then slowly migrating westward uh, into the western suburbs of Boston where I didn't even know that such a place called Western Mass existed. Um, and, and then now I'm here. Um, even in Boston, though, I will say that, uh, you know, I, I, I found it not, not particularly diverse, right? So there, there aren't that many non-white communities. Um, in Western Mass, uh, it's it's been a strange experience because not only are there not that many non-white communities, but uh, even among the the few people that I know that are not white, we it feels fragmented. Um, there aren't there isn't enough of a community to really to build something on. And my own experience is that uh, I don't neatly fit into even the non-white communities. Um, so there are small pockets of, for example, Indian. Uh, or uh, Indian origin immigrants here, but their immigration narratives are so, so different than, than mine. Um, and so there's a way in which I'm not really Indian. I, I don't have an, enough of an Indian connection to be, to be part of an Indian community in Western Massachusetts um, for, for a variety of reasons, right? So, um, and so for, for many reasons, I, I consider myself culturally Americanized and by that, actually, white American, uh, you know, white American literature is what I grew up reading, um, even in Yemen. Um, I grew up reading the Hardy Boys. Uh, you know, <laughs> I grew up reading Nancy Drew. Um, I grew up uh, reading National Geographic. Um, I grew up reading Time Magazine and Newsweek. Um, uh, you know, so, so there's a way in which America or white America was familiar to me even before I arrived here. And when I got here, there was a way in which um, white American patterns of, of speaking, um, this accent that I have now, this, this sort of white American middle class accent, um, that was, that's, that's how I spoke uh, even before I got here. So, so there's a way in which I've been performing whiteness uh, from from my childhood onward, um, and there's a way in which white whiteness or white American culture has had this sort of colonizing uh, effect on on the rest of the world. There are so many people in, in large parts of the world that grow up seeing American movies, listening to American music that has a very white um, influence, right? So, um, so I mean, for example, I grew up. With my parents, you know, my friends in Yemen, we were watching American, you know, crime movies in the 80s that always had black people as criminals, especially black men. Um, and so the narrative that I remember very clearly uh, from my friends in Yemen, you know, my Yemeni Muslim friends, um, and from my, my Indian parents, 
is that if I when I went to the U.S., you know, they were they told me, and I was I was afraid myself of black men as criminals. Hmm. That's the racist you know, colonization that I grew up with, uh, even though I was a man of color, a, br- a brown man, uh, and, you know, looked Arab, looked vaguely Middle Eastern. Um, there's a way in which there's this sort of anti-blackness that I grew up with. Um, so my experience in Western Mass, to kind of loop that back, is in a weird way, it feels very familiar. Um, and in a weird way, it, it takes a little while for me to uh, recognize, oh, wait a second, I, this, I'm not, you know, of here. Um, I go to the Y to, to work out and every now and then I get this stark realization. I look around the room and I'm like, oh crap, I'm, I'm the only non-white person working out in this, in this room. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so that those moments happen. Uh, I live in a community where I'm the only non-white person in my neighborhood. Uh, and that, that every now and then that feels, weird that feels like ah oh, crap I, I i still don't belong here um, so what do you do after you have that thought does it take you to a place to think about your identity or does it make you feel bad does it give you a chance to feel empowered and know that you you do belong here i mean i wonder what that conversation where that conversation goes yeah it's it's a bit of holding both mm-hmm. uh you know so i feel like i have this sort of uh Split consciousness all the time, the double consciousness all the time. Mm. Like, well, um, I have chosen this place to be my home. Politically, this is my home. Uh, I'm committed to to uh, making this place better, um, and in solidarity with my predominantly white neighbors, um, and also realizing, well, you know what? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm never actually going to feel like I completely belong really anywhere. Um, so I might as well choose to not feel like I belong here (laughs) (laughs) or choose to feel like I don't belong here because I, I'm not going to, I'm going to feel like I don't belong anywhere. I might as well feel like I don't belong here. Yeah. Um, so the, the other part to that is I, I think, and I've embraced this, the reason why I've chosen Stephen as my middle name is that I've really embraced that, that position of being the person who is not from here but is able to belong and move and connect with with people here uh, nevertheless, um, right? So nevertheless, I persist. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, because I think there's, there's a value to uh, me being a part of a community where I could try to push people toward rethinking how we have always done things here in Western Mass. Um, and to be like, you know what? Maybe we don't have to do things this way. Uh, you know, maybe we should put up more street signs. Uh, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe we should uh, have more uh, nights of the year, evenings of the year, where uh, we have culturally themed events um, in our cities, in our towns. Um, you know, <laughs> things like that. So. Uh. I want to get back to the comment you made earlier about your perception of black men um, when you were in Yemen and watching movies and then moving here. How has that perception changed or how has it been shaped as you live in the U.S. and experience the world differently? Mm-hmm. You know, initially, um, you know, I, I came here for graduate school. I then worked as an engineer. Um, so I was in sort of that middle class migration, immigration narrative. Um, so I was an Asian, you know, South South Asian Indian man, 
uh, here working as an engineer. So I was uh, on my way toward that sort of middle class affluence. Um, in that in that space, uh, I, at that point, I was also an evangelical conservative, um, and so I was becoming an adult in a right wing, uh, predominantly Republican, uh, predominantly conservative worldview. Even here in Massachusetts, uh, the church that I went to at the time was a predominantly white church, predominantly conservative church. the The people I worked with at the company I was in were more diverse but also mostly engineers and mostly affluent. Um, and so most of the views that I had were conservative views. I tended to view illegal immigration, for example, as a crime. I um, felt very strongly against illegal uh, immigrants. I used that phrase, illegal immigrants. Um, I, you know, I felt like I was doing everything right as an immigrant. Um, and so I felt that was very unfair for people to be here, quote unquote, illegally. Um, you know, and much of that was influenced by the very conservative views that I was, that was around, but it was also from, from my own conservatism at the time. Uh, there were very, very few black people in engineering at the company that I worked in. Uh, so that view, I, I still had very few interactions with actual black people um, until I left engineering, really. So, uh, so that began to change only after I, I left engineering. Mm -hmm. um, in 2008 um so when you heard about the news on saturday um about what was going on in charlottesville what was your response to that uh i was not surprised i i, I just was not surprised um this is something that many many people have studied i've learned from so many over the past six years or so now um on some of the, the real recent and also long histories of this kind of white supremacy, this kind of violence. Um, so I was, I was simply not surprised. Uh, the, the march itself in Charlottesville, the, 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 the uh, all the different white supremacist neo-Nazi groups that showed up, that was not surprising. They've been very open about their, their activism for many, many years now. Um, you know, there are, uh, white supremacist music festivals for crying out loud, uh, that happen, uh, right. I mean, can you imagine, uh, you know, if, if, uh, there were like, you know, uh, extreme, uh, uh, you know, jihadi Muslim music festivals in, in the U S that yeah. just, you know, no. Yeah. So, but there are major music festivals, white power music festivals that happen, in the US. Um, so that was just not surprising. The reaction of people to this, uh, the, the protests, the levels of shock, the people being appalled and outraged, that was also not surprising. I mean, again, I, I feel like people have not been paying attention. Uh, you know, if you were not outraged that there are white power music festivals, <laughs> then why are you, you know, um, so that was not surprising. The the person driving the car, the, the guy who used his car as a weapon, the, the, the murderer, mm -hmm. um, that was also not surprising. The Center for uh, Counterterrorism at West Point has been studying uh, right-wing extremism for decades now, uh, ever since the Oklahoma City bombing back in 1994. And, and they have pointed out very clearly that there is so, so much more of a greater threat to uh, Americans from right-wing extremism, from lone wolf 
uh, acts from white supremacists and right wing extremists than from, quote unquote, uh, Islamist terrorists. Uh, so uh, I'm actually what's more surprising is that more violent lone wolf attacks have not happened uh, at, a, at a bigger scale. There are so many smaller scale lone wolf attacks that happen every single week, every single month. There are so many shootings that happen, uh, many of them coming from a place of, you know, uh, white supremacy or of right wing extremism. But because they're in the noise of the existing level of gun violence in the U.S., they don't attract attention. Um, and when they do attract attention, they get very easily uh, sidelined as a mental health issue. You know, so-and-so is just a, a crazy person, usually a crazy man, uh, a deranged, you know, person. So it doesn't attach uh, with the pattern that it deserves. So so when that the car hitting the protester happened, I was not surprised by that. I was thankful that there weren't more casualties. I was sad that, that you know, Heather Heyer died and she got killed. Yeah. Uh, um, there's so I, overall my my reaction that day was just one of fatigue um, of of like this 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 has happened before this keeps happening um, a, a, fe- a real feeling of fertility of feeling like uh, the, all this outrage is really just fatiguing because it's not translating into actual action it's not translating into any real change yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of energy being put into this conversation, but what are we doing about it? And yeah. and honestly, I don't know what to do about it. I, I think talking about it is helpful, but where to start? I have no idea. It, it feels so big and confusing and upsetting, and I don't know how to relate to the the you know the white supremacists who are deciding this is a really important thing to keep pushing I, I just don't know where to go with it it feels like yeah like futile like what what are we doing here yeah yeah and this uh, you know when you asked me earlier you know if, if we could talk about this and i said yes because i've been trying to write about this um because there's uh, i think there are some things that we can start uh and the 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 really weird thing is like these white supremacists these neo nazis they're they're cartoonish you know they are caricatures um, and it's it's like I was listening to this podcast uh, Pots of America and they were making this point like it is so easy to denounce Nazism <laughs> you know it's like it's the caricature of white supremacy when you say white supremacy and people imagine the Klan people imagine Nazis. Um, you know, and, and people are like, well, no, they're not really Nazis. Well, here they are. They're really Nazis. They're, they're actually doing the Heil Hitler salute. You know, what more do you need to denounce them? And there's, it's so clear. I think the harder thing is to recognize white supremacy in its not so obvious, uh, forms. So, and I think that's where the, the energy could be channeled. Um, uh, the, of course, actual neo-Nazis, of course, these actual white supremacists, the actual white power music festivals, the actual white power groups, those need to be just shut down. That's, it's not a free speech issue to me. That's, it, this is a hate crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are hate criminals and um, they need to be treated as such. So, um, but to take that one step beyond of, of thinking about where is this white resentment coming from? Behind these these marches, behind the, the white supremacists who actually march out there, there are 
for every one of those that actually shows up to, you know, with a, <laughs> with a freaking tiki torch, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> and a, you know, goddamn khaki pants and white polo shirts because they want to look like Trump, you know, yeah. behind every one of those, there are hundreds of, you know, middle class, you know, white Americans, even here in Western Mass, who feel like, um, who feel resentment as white people. Uh, who feel that reverse racism exists, who feel that affirmative action uh, is against white people. Uh, you know, Fox and Friends on Sunday morning uh, begin saying things like, oh, you know what, uh, the president was right to say that there's bigotry on all sides um, and that these white supremacists, even though they are doing things violently, um, their resentments uh, deserve to be heard. Um, and so that message resonates with a whole big chunk of the population. There's a reason why uh, Trump won beyond the Russian meddling. Um, you know, even if the Russian meddling hadn't been there, Trump would have gotten somewhere around 40, 43 percent of the vote. Um, and that's troubling. That's that's that that's the significant amount of the population that actually does believe in this sort of white resentment. Um, that's the danger to me. That's the real danger. Um, you know, any number of people will come out, you know, Sunday evening, there was uh, here in Western Mass in Northampton, there was a rally supporting Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. You know, we stand in, we stand in support of Charlottesville. You know, of course, so many people came up with that because of course it's easy to come out, uh, and, and denounce white supremacy. Um, but you know, will people come out to support Black Lives Matter, mm. uh, in those same numbers? Why not? You know, will people, people put up? Uh, you know, people now will put up, I support Charlottesville, you know, on their office doors or on their, you know, homes, you know, and so on. Will people put up Black Lives Matter signs? Um, neighbors in Western Mass go around taking down Black Lives Matter signs because they feel so offended by Black Lives Matter. Uh, where's that offense coming from? How do we address that? How do we challenge our white neighbors who feel so like, oh, that sign is making me feel guilty as a white person. That needs to happen. That's where the energy needs to go. Mm. Having those conversations, especially if you're talking with someone and they're and they're clearly racist, they're they're making comments that are pointing to, you know, having some sort of discrimination against a group and and staying silent. That's the problem. That's when when we need to start changing the conversation, asking questions. Oh, what did you mean by that? Can you tell me more about that? And and engaging with them to maybe educate them or get them to see things a little differently. So is that something we could keep in our consciousness as a way to change that conversation? Yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's a start, right? I mean, it's, it's like when there's a clear racial discrimination thing going on and people are silent, you know, to challenge people on it, saying, okay, why are you silent about this? You know, you were easy, you were ready to to be outraged at the white supremacists. You know, so here's here's a way for you to actually say something, take a stand on something that matters. Um, uh, you know, I'd encourage people to watch the movie Thirteenth, the documentary Thirteenth. Um, it talks about mass incarceration and how that's an issue now. That that uh, all of us can make an effort in our own communities. Uh, mass incarceration touches every single county, every single community. There is no place in the U.S. that can say that it is so progressive, that it is so blue, that it is so democratic or whatever, that it, it's not touched by mass incarceration. Even in our own little Western mass bubble, uh, our prison population is dramatically, you know, over skewed in its racial representation. 
um, you know, toward black and Hispanic men. Um, so there, there are racist patterns of, of incarceration happening right here in our own towns. Um, you know, in Springfield, where I work now, the, right after the Charlottesville incident, a Springfield police officer uh, wrote on his Facebook wall that he was, you know, he was actually cackling with laughter about uh, how the protesters got rammed by the car uh, and he's being censured. I don't know if he's going to get fired, uh, even here in Springfield. But that echoes a long line of people feeling like they have to support law enforcement. You know, people saying back when the Dakota Access Pipeline was happening, there are actually laws on the books now, or in the works now, in Republican legislatures, uh, saying that it's it, it'd be okay if if you are driving and if protesters are blocking the roadway, um, for you to go ahead and run down protesters is okay. And so. There's those kinds of laws that are beginning to get worked out. People need to start paying attention to that and, and raising outrage at that. Mm-hmm. I think those kinds of uh, things are, are things that we can ask people to take a stand for. You know, the kind of people now think, thinking that Black Lives Matter is somehow a slam against police officers, you know, that, uh, that we now need to support our law enforcement and to actually say, hey, hang on a second, can we hold our law enforcement accountable? That's all we're really asking for. Hmm. You know, can we point to, uh, you know, can we engage our, our law enforcement officials? You know, let's let's talk to our chief of police. Let's talk to the sheriff um, and ask them, how. what steps are you taking to ensure that you know for a fact that uh, you don't have the structural racism in your in your police force? That's a hard conversation to have. And I think it's something that we, we need to push for. Absolutely. We're just about out of time. And I want to ask if there's any last words or anything that you want to kind of leave us with to think about, or just as a an ending message on this subject. So I know that we could talk about this all week. <laughs> yeah, but just hmm. um, I would recommend people read there's a great book called The Eliminationists um, by a, a journalist named David Nywert, any uh, N-E-I-W-E-R-T. And the book title is The Eliminationists. The book came out in 2009, I want to say, 2010. Um, and so it, it uh, covers the period right, uh, leading right up to after Obama was elected the first time. Um, and the reason I would, I would really encourage people to read this book, it's a very accessible book. Uh, David Navert, as a, as a journalist, has written this to be a very, very clear and engaging. What it does is it traces how the Republican Party, the current Republican Party, um, has become um, effectively an extreme hate party. Uh, The subtitle of the book is How Hate Speech um, Effectively Took Over the Right. And what it does is it traces how over the past 30, 40 years or so, what used to be really fringe hate talk way on on the extreme right, you know, that you would hear only on extreme talk radio, how that became more and more mainstream um, in the modern Republican Party. So this morning I saw in the Washington Post online uh, a news article saying, why are people still racist? Uh, <laughs> you know, and it went to science. It said, what does science say about racism? And they interviewed scientists who are psychologists who are neurologists. And, and, and they were trying to find out what the biological basis for racism is. And I'm, I'm thinking, it's, it's not... Why are, why are we so perplexed about this? So the, 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 the leaving comment I'd, I'd leave for, for listeners is um, this is actually a political issue. This is a cultural issue. Um, we in this, in this country 
have been shaped by 30 plus years of popular media uh, and and one of the two major parties becoming so extremely affiliated with hate talk that we don't even recognize it as hate talk anymore. It's become just mainstream. Mm. The mainstream Republican talking points used to be extreme hate wing talking, hate, hate speech talking points just 30 years ago. The second party, the Democratic Party, is no better. It's actually been part of other uh, forces as well. So, um, but for people that want to understand where did this come from, why is this still an issue, I'd encourage them to read this because it'll help them understand why is it that Fox and Friends is able to respond to something like Charlottesville with something that seems so completely bizarre and why that bizarreness actually does not seem bizarre for over 40% of our neighbors or 40% of the, the American population. There are people, our neighbors, who put up White Lives Matter signs in Western Mass who are influenced by this kind of hate talk. And it's not coming from the white supremacist websites. It's not coming from the white power you know, music festivals. It's coming from Fox News. It's coming from our local news. It's coming from local radio. Excellent. Well, I will definitely put a link to that book in the show notes so um, listeners can find that. And I appreciate you offering that resource and everything you shared here today, Hari. I'm glad we we talked a bit about this subject. I know we just kind of graze the surface, but it's something that needs to be, you know, discussed and, and put out there. And I'm, I'm really glad that we had a chance to do that on today's podcast. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Angela. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. All right. Heavy subject right there, a lot to cover, and as you know, can't really get that far into it in 30 minutes, but wanted to at least kind of open the topic for discussion. Hopefully, Hari was able to shed some light on some questions you've had and also give you some ideas for action moving forward. And I decided not to do the lightning round with him just because it was a very weird direction to go in after having this conversation, and I'm really thankful to him for being open for... To, to discussing it. So if you like today's episode or if you want to comment on it or leave a rating or review on iTunes, it takes a few minutes and it helps more people to find the show. And you can always email me your comments, Angela at speakersisterhood.com. If you have any ideas for upcoming episodes, please don't be shy. would love to hear from you. And that does it for me this week, you guys. And you know what I'm going to say. As always, stop waiting, start creating. I'll see you next time. <laughs>